Thanks so much for being here. Uh, in case you haven't met me yet, my name's Matt, uh, and really glad that you're here along with David. I want to welcome you if you are a visitor. Uh, we're going to spend the next portion of our time uh, just looking into the Bible. Uh, we're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 to 16. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. Uh, if ever you don't have a Bible or forget yours, there are some on the way in. You're welcome to grab uh, one of those, but we'll also have uh, the verses up on the screen. I'd like to begin with just a word of prayer for us, and, uh, and then we'll dive in. So uh, please join with me. Uh, Lord God, thank you for this time. Thank you, God, that uh, it is better weather, that we can leave our homes easily, and, um, and Lord, that we can come here. I, I pray, God, this would be a really uh, helpful time. Uh, I pray, Lord, as we uh, dig into some, some big topics about what it means to be a family as the church, uh, instructions for those of us who have, who have lost spouses, Lord, instructions to widows. God, I just pray that this would be a time of, of helpfulness and comfort and, and peace, and Lord, that uh, for each one, uh, we would hear your word for us specifically. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, as a way into our text this morning, uh, I want to tell you about a movie that you've probably heard of. It's a new movie. It came out just before Christmas, and uh, my eldest son took me for my birthday. Uh, the movie is Ford versus Ferrari. Uh, if you have seen it, you know it's a great movie. Uh, if you haven't seen it, uh, let me tell you what it's about. It's about cars racing. Uh, that's pretty much it. Cars racing, uh, Ford in particular wanting to build the fastest race car that they can to beat Ferrari in this big uh, race in Europe. Uh, most of the movie is spent racing cars, uh, but if they're not racing cars, the other thing they're doing is building cars. Okay, that's the, actually more of the movie is them designing, rebuilding, building this, this car. This uh, car, Ford spent about $9 million on this car, trying to make it the fastest car possible. And so it's a lot of them redesigning and tearing things apart and putting them back together to reach their goal. Uh, I mentioned that on the front end because we've been talking in this uh, pas uh, passage through Timothy about the goals of the church. And it's also true that in the church, there are times when we need to redesign things. We need to rebuild things. Not the foundational truths of the church, but kind of the way that ministry happens. Uh, this, this letter is a letter written from Paul to Timothy about a church in Ephesus. And he's been writing about the things that need to be fixed. Well, in our passage today, there's one ministry in particular. A ministry to the widows of the church that has kind of gotten off track. And it needs to be uh, redone, retooled. Um, the challenge, though, is that uh, churches are not like cars, right? Churches, uh, cars, you can just rip something off, put it back on, you can be decisive, you can be quick. Uh, churches are made up of people. And with people, uh, you need to be a little more tender. You, you, you need to still have some hard conversations, we're going to see that, but you need to do it in, in a way that shows love and humility and actually builds up the church. And uh, that's Timothy's challenge. That's what Paul is going to speak to him about, and in fact, to us today. So, uh, we have 16 verses to get through. We're going to take it in three chunks. And as we go through, uh, I'm going to pull out some points of application for us today as the church. If you're here this morning, you would call yourself a Christian. Uh, you're going to get some insight into how we should react and interrelate as a, as a church. If you're a visitor, I think it'll be instructive to see what does God say about how his people should uh, treat each other. So, we're going to begin verse, verses 1 and 2. And, uh, and they are these. Uh, Paul says to Timothy, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. So we're going to stop there. Right from the front end, here we see uh, from Timothy's point of view, some relational principles. Right? Paul is telling him, here's how you should relate to the different people, different demographics in the church. And so this is helpful for us. 
Uh, we're going to look at each one in turn. Uh, the first we see, of course, says treat older men as fathers, right? Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Here the emphasis is placed on showing uh, deference, uh, esteem, respect for those who have more life experience than, than we do. Uh, he's saying that you sh- there are times when correction is necessary, but it should be done in a way that is more of a, instead of a sharp rebuke, more of an encouraging kind of reminder. Now, one word to the older uh, men in particular in the room. This doesn't give license to you to do whatever you want, right? Paul isn't saying, uh, see you guys, you can't be rebuked. So just do whatever you want. No one can say anything about it. Uh, what he's saying is that uh, there are some times where there will be uh, a word of correction, but it should be done in a respectful way. And the next relational principle uh, we see kind of works well together. So let's look at that too. Uh, he says, treat younger men as, as brothers. So meeting Timothy, sometimes you're going to speak to older men in the church, but sometimes younger men. And when you speak to the younger men, uh, you should not belittle them or dismiss them uh, simply because they have less experience. You should treat them as equals. So the, the first two principles kind of work together, like in tandem, right? You can see these two working together between relationships in the church so that a dignity and intimacy would grow between men in the church. Uh, you could see this working to bridge some of the, the gaps, the generation gaps in the church if, if guys would interact this way. I'll give you one example of how uh, I've seen this work well. Uh, there's uh, someone that I've known for years. Uh, I grew up next to him. He's a, um, an older man in the church uh, now. His name's Greg uh, McNally. He's been my neighbor for years. He's now part of the church here. And when I was a school teacher, uh, he was my first principal. So Panorama Elementary, uh, I was teaching grade three and four, very first job, and he was my principal. And I gotta tell you, uh, there were obviously things that I needed to grow in as a young teacher. One of them was my classroom management skills. Uh, looking back, I can see that my class was fairly loud and chaotic. Uh, I didn't see it as a problem, which was part of the problem. Uh, <laughs> the other teachers, though, looking back now, I could see them saying, yeah, this, this is not uh, the most well-controlled class in the school. So I remember one day Greg uh, calling me into his office, and I didn't know what it was about, and uh, he sat me down, and, and he had this kind of conversation. He said, uh, you know, Matt, uh, each teacher has a different threshold for noise in the classroom. <laughs> he says, me, uh, for me, I like a calm, quiet class. He said, the students then can learn well, they can focus, you know, it work, works well. He said, for you, you're going to have to decide, you know, what's your threshold for noise? Which I knew right away what he was saying. He was saying, Matt, your, your class is a disaster. It's completely chaotic and you need to get a hold of it. But he didn't say it that way, which I appreciated, right? If he had said it that way, I would have got the message, but also I would have felt very embarrassed, right? I would have felt very distant from him. I would have felt like the rest of the staff is looking at me me and thinking I'm just doesn't know anything about being a teacher. So he communicated in a way as if we were equals, even though I clearly did not know what I was doing. That's the principle I think we see here with Paul. He's saying when you When you have times of correction for those who are younger than you, when you treat them with a sense of respect, it actually builds relationships up without tearing things apart. Um, There's wisdom in that. There's wisdom I think we can benefit from uh, probably inside and outside the church. But we see as family, this is how we should uh, react. Now let's move on to the the women. You notice the next thing, he says, treat older women as mothers. Uh, By this he means be caring, Uh, Be respectful, be grateful to the older women in the church. Uh, We actually see this in Paul's life. Uh, At the end of the letter to the Roman church, uh, he writes this in uh, verse uh, 13. He says, Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. 
Uh, so you get the sense that as Paul traveled around, there were certain older ladies that really probably cared for him and he really uh, loved them and respected them. And there is this relationship that developed. He's saying in the church, this is how we should treat the older women in the church with a high degree of respect, high degree of gratefulness for the service that they provide. Uh, there's actually a lot more to say about the role of older women in the church. That, in fact, is what a lot of the passage is about, so we're going to get there. But let's jump now to the younger women. Uh, you see his instruction. He says, treat younger women as sisters and, and note the added instruction, in all purity. So what he's saying there, Timothy, is you should develop relationships with the younger women in the church, but you need to guard yourself. You need to make sure that these are relationships that are proper, that there's nothing sexual about these relationships. And I think this is very needed counsel for the church back then, certainly, but also for us today. Right? Just think of, think of how much uh, heartache, how much hurt, how much destruction would be avoided if men in the church treated young women as sisters rather than as potential sexual partners. Just imagine how the ministry would grow, how much more fruitful that the church worldwide would be if all the men in the church treated women as ministry partners, as family members, rather than uh, people to, to flirt with or, or to use for our own uh, pleasure. This disposition would greatly increase our credibility in the world. Right? Every time there's, there's a story of infidelity or sexual misconduct, especially for the leadership of the church, the world looks at us and thinks... What are you guys doing? Every time that happens, we, we dishonor the name of Jesus and we hinder our ministry. We make it harder for us to be able to go out and speak about this life that honors the Lord when within the church, we're not actually operating that way. So there's more that can be said, but there's more to move on to. So suffice it to say that what we see here at the beginning is, is really Paul describing the church as a family. That's why the, the title of the sermon was Family Matters because we see that this is really how we should relate to each other. What we also see, though, as we're going to see in the next few verses, is that as family, in fact, we know this about being a family, uh, there are very often difficult conversations that we have to have with each other, right? That's why he's talking about rebuking someone, right? When you have to have difficult conversations, you need to know how you should relate to each other. So the rest of the passage, as I said, is about a very specific ministry and about some very difficult conversations that Timothy is going to have to have to set this ministry back on track. Now, the ministry is to the widows in the church. And if there's one thing that um, the, the ancient world knew about the early church is that they cared for their widows well. They cared for orphans well. In fact, this has been the heart of God since uh, in the beginning of the Old Testament, that this is how his people should treat those who are in a vulnerable situation. Uh, especially in the ancient world, uh, as a widow, you were in a very vulnerable situation. If your husband died, uh, you had very few economic opportunities to earn a living. Uh, you couldn't own land. You were in a very precarious situation. And the role of the people of God was to come around those who were in that position. That, that continues uh, to be the case. But let's look back and see just some of the practical instructions. So this is way back in Deuteronomy. This is sort of um, some of the foundational principles of ethics in the church. Deuteronomy 24:19, God says to his people, when you reap your harvest in your field, and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, for the fatherless, and for the widow. So you see the principle there. He's saying, don't, don't take everything in your crop for you. Leave it for those who are in need. That, that's what it means to be the, the family and the church of God. Right? In fact, that's God's heart towards those who are in need. In Acts 6, 
uh, we see the church establish a practical helps ministry for, for those in need, for the widows in the church. What we see here, unfortunately, is that it's the same kind of ministry that's happening, but it's, it's got off track. It's not actually doing what, what it should do. And so Paul has some very specific instructions to Timothy in terms of how to make things right. Now, we should note here that the instructions here are about how to minister to widows. Uh, but the truth of the matter is that for those of us who are not widows, who don't have widows in our family, this can be kind of an academic exercise. Where we're, we're talking about someone in a certain situation. Uh, the reality is there are widows amongst us. And so we want to enter into this with a very tender heart, I hope. And if you're here this morning and that's you, I hope you're going to hear from the Lord in terms of how he wants uh, the very best help for you and the church itself. So I'm going to read through uh, the next section, verses 3 to 8. Okay, so here's verses 3 to 8. Paul says to Timothy again, he says, Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things well, as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. I'll stop there. So the first problem uh, that we see in this ministry to widows is that it has swelled to include women who really should not have been cared for financially by the church. Uh, Paul says there in verse 3, honor widows that are truly widows. So true widows in his uh, view is that these are women in need, women who um, are on their own, they don't have any family to take care of them, and women who are of good moral character. Now you might say, Paul, why, why are you putting any restrictions on who the church should help? Like, isn't the church supposed to be a source of care, a generous source of care? Like, aren't we supposed to help anyone who, anyone who comes and has need? And the answer is, kind of. The real answer is, well, it depends what you mean by help, right? Now, to be clear, Paul is not here concerned with the, with the bottom line of the church. He's not, he's not writing this because he's concerned about the church finances, his chief concern is that people would be helped in the way that is best for them. And that's different from individual to individual. He's saying uh, there are some widows that really would benefit from financial help. But there are others for whom it would be better if they would reconnect with their family and their family would care for them financially. And there are still others for whom their financial difficulty is not the main issue. The bigger issue is their self-indulgence, is their sin. And so what Paul's concern is, is that as the church, our goal is to care well for people, to help people truly depending on their stage in life and their position in life. So I'm going to pull out uh, three points of application here for us as a church today in light of the instruction to the church back then. So here's the first one. Uh, families. Families should be the primary source of care for relatives in need. Uh, this is pretty clear in the text. Look at verse 4. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. So you see what, um, what's being said here, right? Speaking into the tendency that families have today and back then to shrink back from our responsibility to care for our aging parents, uh, aging mothers, uh, grandmothers. There are people back then who were saying, you know what? It's fine, 
right? Mom's fine, grandma's fine, the church is taking care of them. It's okay, we don't have to worry about it. That's the same thing we hear today very often, except today we would say, it's fine, we found a good care facility. We found a good home, they're being cared for, we don't have to worry about them anymore. See, what Paul makes clear is that while the church can help and should help sometimes, that's not the best. The best thing is for families to take the primary responsibility and to care for aging parents and for those relatives who are in need. Now, this doesn't mean that care facilities are wrong. What it's speaking to is the heart. What's our heart when we're caring for our relatives, those in our family? Is our heart, are we wanting just to unburden ourselves and just to say that's checked off, they have a place to say someone's going to feed them, someone's going to give them their meds, that, that kind of thing? Or are we saying, man, our heart, our heart wants to care well for our family members. And so we're gonna find the best position, maybe a care facility, maybe in our own home, so that they are well cared for. And you notice here that even though we're talking about financial need, really we're, we're talking about help in general. Because the tendency also is for us to say, well, if there is a good care home, then that box is checked, that's all we need to worry about. But there's so many other layers of care that human beings need. I was speaking with uh, Starla Stewart, who's part of our church. Uh, she works in one of these homes. And I was just asking her about, you know, the people that she cares for and what some of the needs are. And not surprisingly, she said their, their greatest desire for those that she cares for is that they would be visited more often. Right? Probably not a surprise. But she says she, she knows that there are many people who have families in the area, some of them believers, uh, who rarely visit their mom or their dad or their grandma and grandpa. And what we're seeing here is this is a direct contradiction to what we're called to, how we're called to treat uh, the people in our lives, our family members. See, there's always excuses, right? You can imagine back then people had a lot of excuses just like today, right? They had to, they had to grow their own food, right, to survive. They had a lot of work to do, right? They, they had many reasons to say it was tough to go and care in that way. They were strapped financially just like, just like we are. But we should notice the strong language in Scripture, in Mark 7, uh, if you remember the story, Jesus rebukes religious leaders because they claimed to not be able to care for their uh, older parents financially because they were giving that money to the temple. They called it uh, a Corbin. It was a certain type of offering. Jesus rebukes them and says, your primary responsibility is to your family. And look again at what it says in verse 8. The language is so strong. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. See what it's saying? It's not saying this is frowned upon in Scripture. It's not saying, you know, you should really get around to it. It's saying if, if you're not doing this, then, then there's a danger that you don't really love Jesus. That's the strength of the language here. It's language that we should take to heart, that we should recognize that, that we have an opportunity to, to give back to our parents who cared for us. That's exactly what we see in the text an opportunity to have the joy of caring for them as they cared for us. Okay, the second thing we see is that, uh, and kind of the complementary thing, is that the church, the church must uh, be seriously active in caring for women in need. Uh, I say women here because uh, there's another category of, of women today that didn't really exist back then that would fit, I think, under the true widow, and that is uh, single mothers. Uh, that is those whose, whose husbands are maybe still alive, but they are not uh, active. They're not helping. They're not providing child support, whatever the case may be. I think it would fit rightly under what Paul is saying, those, those women who are in need. And as the church, 
Our, our, our joy, our responsibility, our duty is to care for those women in need. And there's multiple layers of care, right? For those of us who know these women individually, we have to keep our minds open, our eyes, our ears, our hearts open to how we can help, how we can step in, uh, lighten the load, provide for them as community groups, right? Groups in the church, that's a fantastic uh, place to, to know what's going on in people's lives, to rally support, to take, uh, you know, a collection or whatever the case may be to care for those who have need. But there's also kind of a, a bigger picture view of this, something that's probably more uh, parallel to what Paul is talking about. And that for us here at Tri-City Church is our Benevolent Fund. You might have noticed, you've been around for a while, once a month we have Benevolent Sunday and we take an extra offering. We have opportunity to say you can give towards this fund and this fund is not budgeted. It's just all the money that comes in, we then redistribute to those who have need. And that's kind of what Paul is talking about. Uh, that those in the community, uh, church community, wider community can come to the church with financial needs with some and, and get care because we have the money set aside for them. Uh, I'm, really, I'm really glad for how this fund has been used uh, here at Tri-City Church. We've never had to say no to anyone because we haven't had enough money. People have been well supporting it. Thank you to all of you who contribute to that. Uh, that really is part of the, if you think about it, it's really very close to the heart of what the church should be about. Right? Our hope, our goal is that people from our city look at us as a church and say, there's a place that I can go to when I need help. Whether it's financial help, practical help, and we hope they realize a sent, uh, spiritual help. That, that really is our goal, that as we, as we give to others generously, that people would see the heart of God. That it would exemplify the gracious, generous heart of God. In the ancient world, the church was famous for how it cared for Widows and orphans and those in need, that should be our goal as well. We see that again here in this text. The third thing, again, I think complementary, they kind of work together, these three, is that the church should be discerning when providing financial help. So we should give help, but we should be discerning. You see that in verse six, uh, he says about uh, certain widows, uh, she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives, right? They're not someone that the church uh, should help. And again, the question might be, why the restriction? Like, wh why is there some sort of like moral grading in terms of who we should help and who we shouldn't help? And the answer is, it's not always helpful to give someone money. Sometimes given, giving someone financially can do more harm than good. And we need to be aware of that as a church. I remember another ministry I was a part of. There was a, a young man who kind of got connected in with our church. Uh, he was getting his life back together, coming off the street, getting off of drugs. And so we were kind of rallying around, helping him. Someone from the church, I gave him a job, which, which was fantastic. Uh, but they made the mistake of giving him a cash advance on his paycheck. And so they gave him like 500 bucks. And that was too much of a temptation for him. And he relapsed back into drugs. And we had, we had to help him through that. So there are times when it's actually not helpful to, to give money. Uh, to really help people, we need to be aware of what would be most caring, most helpful. And we get this sense in what Paul is saying, that there, are, there were some widows here, some ladies, that because of their self-indulgent lifestyle, providing for them financially actually wasn't drawing them closer to God. It was probably enabling them to go farther away. And so he's, he's saying here, there needs to be some conversation, some wisdom about how to help people best. This is also why we need to know our ministry goals, right? It, our, our ministry goal is not simply to help people in the short term, right? That's part of it. But our, our ultimate goal is to help people for eternity. Uh, it's not either or, right? It's not one or the other. It's both. But, 
But if the short-term help is hindering people from truly knowing Christ or growing the Lord, then we have to be aware of that. We might have to, to pull that back for the sake of the greater help that we, we want for them. Uh, this is why, just so you know, for our benevolent fund, we have kind of an application process, right? People, people apply, give us some info. We have a conversation because we always say we, 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 we can help financially. We want to do that, but we want to help holistically for the whole person. Our, our greatest desire is for people to, be, to know the love of God, to know the gospel, and to grow in that way. And so there needs to be wisdom in how that, how that plays itself out. So, so in terms of benevolent ministry in the church, a generosity, discernment, uh, but what we see in terms of this specific ministry is that it wasn't only about uh, care for them, for the, the widows. It was also an opportunity for these widows to, um, to serve the church. And so it was kind of two things. And then even in the second part of service, there was some problems there too. So I'm going to read the next, uh, the last chunk of scripture, verses 9 to 16, and uh, see Paul's instruction. He continues this way. Uh, Let a widow be enrolled... If she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works, if she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work, but refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened, so that it may care for those who are truly widows. So, a lot in there, but notice uh, there are, there's two times that Paul mentioned this uh, enrolling. He said, uh, you know, prevent from enrolling. This, this idea of enrolling gives the sense that there was some sort of official list for widows in the church. Now, the, the typical point of view here is that there is one list of widows and that we just have a lot more qualifications about that list, right? We had a, a first bit and now a second bit, even more stringent qualifications. Um, there are some, though, that would disagree, So here's Ken Hughes. He argues a bit of a different point of view. He says, there's another way to read this passage that makes more sense. And that is to understand that the list is a registry of widows capable of offering service. The stringent qualifications to get on the list are necessary for spiritual service. I tend to agree with his view. What he's saying is that it's not just one list. There's kind of two related groups of of widows. There are are those who have financial need in the church and there are those who are interested in in sort of full-time ministry of a ministry of service and they too would be cared for financially. But for that second group, it makes sense that there would be more restrictions, more qualifications that were needed because they're actually ministering to other people in the church. Uh, You see some of the restrictions there. Uh, Verse nine says there's an age restriction right, 60 years and older. Uh, Verse 10, there's a reputation of good works throughout many years of their life. Uh, Verse 11, there's a pledge not to uh, remarry. It doesn't really make sense to have those kinds of qualifications just for someone who needs financial help, right? Like if you have to pledge not to get remarried, to come and get money from the church, it seems like that's not, that's maybe a bit much, right? But if this is a different kind of ministry altogether, then it tends to make more sense. Right? If, if really what we're talking about here are, are women who are devoting the rest of their lives to minister to the church, minister to God himself, 
then, then it makes much more sense. These would be women that others in the church could look up to. Women who devoted their lives to prayer. Women that exemplified the heart of God. We have an example, in fact, of this kind of a woman uh, in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, when Mary and Joseph bring uh, young Jesus to the temple, we meet Anna, this woman named Anna, who's uh, called a prophetess. Uh, look here in Luke 2.36. It says, And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. See, older godly women like Anna have always been used by God to advance the mission of the church. And it makes sense why. They have the time, they have the energy, they have the heart for the church to pour themselves out in prayer, to do the very thing that changes hearts, that advances the gospel, and that moves the hands of God. See, this type of ministry, uh, by and large, is undervalued, I think, by us in the church. Right? A ministry of prayer, a ministry of service. But what we see throughout history is that it, w- it has never been undervalued by God. I want to read you a... Uh, something that was written by a pastor. His name was Glenn Knecht. Uh, he visited the Ukraine uh, right after the fall of the Soviet Union and he went and visited the churches there. I, w- I want to read to you what he says about the women and the ministry that they had during the communist regime. Uh, he says this. He says, How mistaken the communists were when they allowed the older women to continue worshiping together. It was they who were considered no threat to the new order, but it was they whose prayers and faithfulness over all those barren years held the church together and raised up a generation of men and young people to serve the Lord. Yes, the church we visited was crowded with these older women up at the very front, for they had been the stalwart defenders and maintainers of Christ's gospel, but behind them and alongside them and in the balcony and outside the windows of the church were the fruit of their faithfulness. Men, women, young people, and children. He says, we must never underestimate the place and power of godly women in the church. See, that's what Paul's talking about. That level of commitment, that level of devotion, that significance when it comes to the church ministry, which helps us understand Paul's instructions, right? What kind of a woman would be fit for that kind of a ministry? An older woman who has life experience, who's been shaped by God, who's grown in godliness, who now has the time and energy and heart to pray for the church? Absolutely. But a younger woman who is more easily swayed from her commitments by other good desires that she has, desire to to remarry, to, to raise children, or younger women who are perhaps more easily corrupted by gossip and idleness, Paul says of them, it would be better for them to remarry better for them to have children, better for them to manage a household, to grow in godliness so that at a certain point in the future, they might be in the position to take on that kind of a ministry. See, this is why it's helpful to have clarity about the goal of the church. Right? The, the goal of the church is not just to care for people practically. The goal of the church is that people would grow spiritually, that we would have a real deep sense of what humanity needs, not just practical helps, but spiritual help to save us from our sin and to have us grow in godliness so that we would grasp hold of a hope that goes beyond this life and into the life to come. This is true for all of us, young and old. This is how God wants us to grow. 
And so the ministry opportunities are sometimes different depending on our stage of life. So, so those are Paul's instructions again. What are some applications for us? Uh, two, two applications, uh, four and five. Number four, what we see here that for all of us, we should all embrace lives of fruitful ministry. See, Paul is giving very specific instructions to a very specific demographic in the church, right? Younger widows, older widows. Not many of us fit into those categories. But the bigger application is that for all of us, we should, we should look to have fruitful and productive ministry all the days of our lives, right? To the young, what he's really saying is, look, to the young, you should expect to be busy. It's a good thing for you to be busy, busy with family, busy with work, busy with school, busy with kids, busy with the ministry that comes along with all those things. You should expect to be exhausted at night. That probably means that you were doing something worthwhile, worthwhile during the day. That's a good thing, right? You'll notice the ones who got into trouble, the ones who straight after Satan, right, gave themselves over to sin, they were the ones who had too much time on their hands. Uh, human beings, we don't usually do well with too much time on our hands, right? We know this. It's, it's much better if we have something worthwhile and fruitful to do. Now, that doesn't mean what it's saying, what I'm not saying is that we should be working 60 hours a week, never taking vacations, right? That's not what we see in scripture. There's a pattern of rest that comes weekly, uh, yearly, monthly, but see, rest is, is really only good if you have something to rest from. So to the young, Paul is saying, you should expect to be active in ministry in life. That's a good thing for you. The best thing for you is to do that. To the old, what he's saying is, there is no retirement from ministry. See, the tendency sometimes is for, as we get older, for those in that position to think to themselves, you know what? I've really done my part in the church. Right? I've established the church, perhaps. I've helped it grow. I've raised a family. I, I've done those things. It's now the next generation's turn to take care of things. To that, I would say, imagine if those women in the Ukraine had had that point of view. Imagine where the church would be if they had stepped back and, and not stepped out, not poured out their hearts. See, Paul's whole reasoning here, if you look at what he's doing, he's saying there is a distinction between those who have less experience in life and those who have more. The culture would say, right? Our culture says, look, if you're 65, 70, you're getting past your prime. God says, when you're at that position of life, you are in the perfect position to serve the church wholeheartedly. Thank you, here, here, from Phil. <laughs> An older man in the church. See, listen, listen to what I'm saying, right? I'm not saying that you can't enjoy your retirement, right? It's, it's a good thing. You want to go on a cruise? You want to go on the beach? Go. We would all love to be there with you, but we can't, okay? You are in a position where you can do those things. Great. What I'm saying is don't stay too long. What I'm saying is we need you. We need your wisdom. We need your life experience. We need your heart for prayer for the church. We, we need for you to come back and to engage and to help those of us who are earlier on in our lifespan and to pour yourselves out in prayer the way that Paul is describing here. We need to remember our goals. We need to remember the joys of our heart. We, need to, we should be excited about the opportunity to be part of what God is doing, to see people saved, to see people transformed. And we need to remember, I'm pretty sure there's going to be beaches in heaven, right? Like there's got to be. So we're going to be able to be there. You're going to have a glorified body too. You can do all the stuff that you can't even do now, okay? So it's going to be better. All right, fifth thing, last thing. Uh, in the church... This is for all of us again. We should expect to have hard conversations for the sake of love and mission. 
Now, what we see here are some very specific instructions, right? To, to try to make things right in Ephesus. We see family dynamics in the church. We see providing for those in need. We see reshaping ministry. But all of that is only going to happen if Timothy goes and has some very difficult conversations with people in the church. See, this is an established church. He's not starting something new, which means that there are already a bunch of widows who are receiving money from the church instead of connecting with their family and their family doing what they should do. This means that Timothy is going to have to sit down with these women and their families and he's going to have to say, look, things have to change. You, family, need to step up. You're not doing what you should do. Right now in Ephesus, at this time, there are, there are widows receiving funds and they are self-indulgent. They are not living godly lives. The church funds is actually perpetuating that lifestyle and Timothy's going to have to sit down with them and say, look, things are going to have to change. Right now in Ephesus, there are some younger, uh, younger ladies who because of the church providing for them, they are spending their days gossiping, uh, their busybodies, they're causing conflict in the church. Timothy's going to have to go and sit down with them and say, things are going to have to change. I, I can guarantee you, Timothy is not looking forward to any of those conversations, right? No, none of us want to have those conversations. It would be much easier for Timothy to say, you know what, let's just, let's just start a new ministry, right? Let's just leave that as it is, right? I'm young, I'm new, I don't want to ruffle too many feathers. I don't want everyone to hate me right away. It would be easier, but it wouldn't be best, right? You can imagine him saying, or people even giving him wrong counsel, saying, you know what, Timothy, it's, man, you're going to make everyone upset, right? Aren't we supposed to be family? Aren't we supposed to be a happy family? Why would you have those kind of conversations if you have a happy family? The answer is we, we are supposed to be a happy family. If by happy you mean content in Christ, but, but not happy if what you mean is everyone just is left to their own devices. Everyone just does what we want. No one speaks into each other's lives. We just smile and nod and affirm everything that everyone else is doing. That's not real happiness. That's not real family. It's a real family. When we're a real family, we, we care for each other. We care enough to see that we truly grow in godliness. We have conversations with each other to help us to see the sin in our lives, to, to change, to grow. A true family is committed to seeing each other grow in godliness and committed to the mission of the church. At that point in Ephesus, the reason they were in that trouble is because there were people in leadership who were cowardly. Right? They, they never had those conversations. They didn't say no to anyone. And so people seemed happy, but they weren't growing the way that God wanted them to grow. There were people farther from God and the church was farther from its mission because of this poor leadership. This can happen in any church. This can happen in our church if we are not careful. See, if you're part of a healthy church, you should expect to be on the giving end and the receiving end of hard conversations. Conversations motivated by real love for each other and love for the gospel. Now, we need to clarify a bit here just before we end. Um, some of you may hear this and think, yes, I've, I've got a few hard words that I've been waiting to share. And now the pastor just said, I can say it. This is great. I can't wait for this to end. I'm going to do it in the lobby. Please remember, please remember how we started. Can I remind you of the first two verses? Let's read them again. Verse number one, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. You, you see why Paul began there. He's saying, yes, at times there are going to have to be hard conversations, but look at the heart behind it, right? This is a heart that comes 
from a season of prayer, from examining our own heart to see if there's any sin or wrong motivation. This is also within the context of Timothy who has a leadership role in the church. We need to know our role. We need to know our heart before we have these kind of conversations. But in a family, in a church, these conversations should happen. We should have the humility to hear from someone who genuinely loves us, has demonstrated care for us, and then has maybe some questions about how we're living. That's a loving thing. That's a helpful thing. That, that's, that's what we should have as a community of faith. That we would be seeking to, to see each other grow in our salvation, grow in our knowledge of God, and also to see the mission of the church go forth, unhindered because of our, of our cowardice, of our selfishness, any of that. The way that happens is that we hear from God and we hear from each other. So I'm going to pray that for us as a church and then we're going to worship some more. Uh, Lord God, I, I thank you for this passage, just a, such a practical passage, Lord. A passage that's all about family matters, uh, things that, that we should be right in the midst of if we're part of this church or another church. Uh, Lord, I do pray that you would help each of us uh, guard our hearts against pride, uh, guard our hearts against uh, a sharp response when someone wants to speak into our lives. But Lord, would you also have, have the courage, Lord, uh, the, the devotion to really pray for each other, to pray for those people we know, pray for our family members, care for them in the way that we should. And I do pray that through our efforts, through the ministry of the Spirit through us, we would collectively grow in godliness. We would turn away from sin. We would be a place that is known for its generosity and care and its love for you. And I want to pray, uh, finally, Lord, for the widows among us. God, we pray great comfort for them. Lord, what a difficult thing it is to look at a new season of life and have this, this absence that is a part of it every, day in, day out. I pray, God, for your blessing, for your protection, that you would minister to them in a powerful way and that they would know that there is great significance for them in the years to come by your grace and by your power. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.